Here we go, man. We got, we got church going on here this morning. Happy to see you all, and uh, we're going to get into the Word. This will be, be rich. I do appreciate the spirit of enthusiasm of, in worship. And just, I, you know, like, you can see it up here. You're watching all the faces and stuff, and it's not as though we're trying to crank something up. Or It's just there's a spirit of worship in this place. And that's, that's a really rich thing. All right, <clears throat> so here's the title. Last week we started a study in the, uh, the book of Hebrews. <clears throat> the title for this morning is The Supremacy of the Son of God. It seems to me, <clears throat> I'm just um, feeling that. I, one, of, one of the things I really appreciate, appreciate about Joel and the worship team and people who select music is it seems like music is always selected that honors, lifts up, and glorifies our Lord Jesus. And that's what it's for, right? It's not just to get some, like, get some, you know, some energy going or get some, you know, some mojo happening or something like that. It is really that we come together and reflect again. We're living in a world where this is, this is always minimized. This is never the important thing, right? Jesus is not the important thing. He's just like a, a good name to use when you get really angry or something like that. But, it, but as a general rule, <clears throat> it's, it's even interesting that like my son was telling me, my son works at uh, Blackstone in New York. So he works around a lot of people, you know, a lot of, you know, young professionals, and they know nothing, nothing about God. They know nothing about the Bible. They know nothing about Jesus, and he does. So conversations come up, and of course, you're, you're, you're cautious. You're careful in situations to not want to say something that's going to, you know, put somebody's nose out of joint or whatever. There's a certain amount of decorum that uh, has to happen on your job, <clears throat> but He'll bring up, like, the, people will be talking about the simplest topic, the most basic topic, and he'll have some information there about what, what the Bible may have to say about that or how that fits, and people are just kind of amazed. We, we, we were talking about this before because we are living at a time when people are starving for the knowledge of God. It's kind of like the Hosea time where he said, my people are destroyed because of lack of knowledge. And so, <clears throat> um, so... Our church and the function of the church, the primary, most basic function of the church is to lift up Jesus, right? And then as we lift up Jesus and exalt him both by the words that we speak, but even more so by the life that we live, people will be drawn or people are drawn to him. So <clears throat> today we're going to um, go further into our study in the book of Hebrews and the title is The Supremacy of the Son of God. Jesus is always the most important possible thing. Thing is probably not the right word. The most important possible subject that gets our attention. <clears throat> this is what Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, is all about. The supremacy of the Son of God. The fact that, <clears throat> excuse me, that Jesus is superior, that Jesus is better than any other possible thing, and particularly in the, uh, in the world, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm sorry, in the world uh, and, and to the community which Paul is writing, um, they were now kind of, de they were departing from one whole culture, one whole understanding of what things were all about and had now come into Christ. And, um, 
And, and there's some discouragement in the community, and so he's writing to them to, uh, to help them with that. <clears throat> so what, if, if, if we just wanted to rest on one like focal point, if you really wanted to know what the entire book of Hebrews is going to be all about, it's going to be all about the supremacy of the Son of God. Jesus is better. Jesus is way, and, and what he's saying to them as Jews is that Jesus is better than what you had. Judaism is great. Judaism is of God. Judaism is given by God, the whole thing, the whole Old, Test, the whole Old, Old Testament. But now Jesus has come, and it, it's, even, it's even found in his most <clears throat> basic statement, these first few verses that we come across, um, that fundamental statement is being made. So let's, uh, here we'll take a look at the, the text, <clears throat> then we'll jump into the message here. God who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things. I was going through that parable, I think it's Matthew 23, and Jesus is talking about the wicked um, vine dressers. All right, and these, these men have been given the opportunity to lease and rent out a vineyard. And they decide that they're just going to take over the vineyard. And so the owner of the vineyard sends some people there to ask what's going on, and they just do those people in. They get rid of those people quick. So finally, the owner says, and Jesus really is telling this parable as kind of the story of what is about to happen in his life. And he says, so finally, the owner of the vineyard says, this is what I'll do. I'll send my son. I'll send my son. They will respect him. But when they send the son, the, the, the mindset of the wicked vine, of the vineyard people or vine dressers or whatever the right word is there, the, the mindset is, ah, this is the son. This is the heir. Let's kill him. Then we get the whole thing for ourselves. And it's really just a commentary on the state of the world right? That God is the, the, the world is God's vineyard. God has planted the thing. God has made the whole thing. And so this, um, th this whole opening is very similar, or that, that, and particularly that parable is totally similar to what the story of the life of Christ was. He came into his own, and his own did not receive him. But to as many as did receive him, he gave them the right to become the children of God, even to as many as believed in his name. Did you, did you receive that? Right? That through Jesus we get this opportunity now to be reunited, brought back into the family of God. Oh, I can't get off on it. It's just so great. It's just so wonderful. So anyway, God who at various times and in various ways, and of course this is all talking about what happened in the Old Testament. God sent various prophets, prophets and people to, uh, to represent him, but now has in these last days spoken to us by his son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, 
having become so much better than the angels as he has, by inheritance, obtained a more excellent name than they. Oh, there is so much in that pack. That is so chock full of important spiritual truth that we could be here a long, long time, right? <clears throat> After he had by himself all these things, through whom he made the worlds, who, and, 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 who, and who upholds all things by the word of his power. So many things to, to get into. So whenever, um, whenever I'm trying to get myself together and ready to do this Sunday morning thing and get up and speak to you and hopefully to be reasonably intelligent and articulate and accurate and all the rest of that kind of stuff. There's kind of always this little fight that goes on in my mind. It, it's kind of similar to a, a, a cartoon that I saw like many years ago in Leadership Magazine. And there was this cartoon where it was like two cartoons together, top and bottom. And the, the, the um, top one is this pastor, and he's working at his desk, and he's got his pencil, his hands, Bibles out, and stuff like that. So he's obviously preparing a message. And a thought bubble is over his head, and the thought bubble says, I really, got, I really ought to be visiting Sister Smith today. She's really not been feeling well for a long time. Okay? Then the bottom one is him sitting with Sister Smith, and his thought bubble is, but I really need to get back to my sermon prep. <clears throat> right? There's always a sense that you're not getting something done. Right? Something that, you're, that, that needs done, and it's still waiting for you to do it. And, and with preaching, it's kind of like that. Now here, here we are, and we're digging into this, this um, book of Hebrews. Right? So this book of Hebrews is telling us all about stuff that is thousands of years old. And I'm thinking while I'm doing this, Boy, there are people in the congregation, some are hurting, some are going through some really difficult times, some people are sick, I know some people are really going through some depression, I know some people are really like freaked out and fearful of the world and things that are going on in the world and all of this stuff, there's, there's so much craziness and contention and confusion all around us and, and what, we're going to be looking at a book that talks to us about 2,000, 3,000 year old things, does this make any sense? It absolutely does. And here's why I believe it makes complete and total sense. Because I believe the more that you know the Bible, really know it, you then have ground to build your life on. And by knowing what God's word has to say, by really knowing it in your person and in your heart and in your mind, you have then the opportunity to evaluate and to scrutinize. You're much better prepared. You're much better equipped to evaluate and to understand and to discern what's going on in the world. It's kind of like <clears throat> there's an old illustra illustration that many people have used about money. When, when they teach a person who's going to be working with money all the time, how to detect counterfeit bills. You know what they do? They require that they touch and handle only real money. Because real money has a feel to it. And they become so accustomed to the feel of the real thing that when a fake bill comes along, they can take a look, they'll, they'll begin to sense that something's wrong with this thing, it doesn't feel right, Take a look at it, it doesn't look right, because you know what the real thing is really all about. You can detect the counterfeit or the fraud. And that's the same thing in terms of our knowledge of God's word and our knowledge of Jesus Christ. The more you know the real thing, which is 
Christ himself. The more you know the real word, which is the word of God itself, the more you will see through all of the shams and all of the deceptions and all of the hollow nonsense and all the foolishness because we are so inundated with all of this stuff all of the time. We live in this media-saturated culture which is constantly bombarding us with the message of this world, and, and you have to be prepared in some way to be able to discern, Amen. right? And so th- that's why it makes sense, even in times of weirdness and confusion like the kind of time that we're living in right now, that the more we really understand the Word of God and really understand what, what God has done, and, and that's why that's so important. God, who at various times and in various ways has spoken to us in time past by the prophets, has now in these last days spoken to us by his son. And the, the author is saying, look, God has been trying to get a message through. God, is trying to get, God has been getting, trying to communicate here. Our God is a communicating God. He's not a silent God. He's a God that wants to communicate and help us to understand what's who we are and what this is all about and where it's all going and how we can fit into the flow of the thing so that we can actually fulfill his higher purpose for our individual lives. Hallelujah. All right, that's some good preaching there, Pastor Steve. We're only like three lines into the thing, man, you know. I'm already patting myself on the back. So anyway, you know, we're living in this time of confusion, Deep societal confusion, moral confusion, educational confusion, social confusion. It it, it is really amazing the things that are being promoted and accepted as truth when in reality a great deal of what is being served up by the culture is just nonsense. It is nonsense, and it gets more nonsensical all the time. So anyway, it's important that we get grounded in the word of God because the Bible says, 1 Corinthians 14, God is not the author of confusion, okay? God does not, God does, is, confusion doesn't come from him. What comes from God is clarity, It'll take you a little while to get through the information, take you a little while to get through the details, to understand the facts, to know how the whole thing is put together. But the better you understand that, the more you will be prepared to be able to just blow off the silly confusion of this present stupid world. Amen, Pastor Steve. All right. So, um, the reason why this letter is so important to New Testament believers is that, that it brings together the Old Testament and the New Testament. So it helps, you know, I remember being over in, uh, in Israel and talking, I, I know I've mentioned this before, talking to a Palestinian pastor. We, they took us to see a number of Palestinian pastors. Many of the Palestinians are Christians. Did you know that? Okay, they're not all Muslim. Many Palestinians are Christian. They're being, they're being taken advantage of by these various different terror and host- the groups that are hostile to Israel. So they, because they're, all these people basically are from Arab descent, they fit right into that culture, people who, who will terrorize Israel. But many, and so anyway, we're talking to this, um, this Palestinian pastor, and he said that, Throughout most of his early life and among the Palestinian people, they really, when they, their Christianity is completely grounded in the New Testament, 
They, don't, they have never read the Old Testament. So if you just read the story in the New Testament, you would think that the Jews are really bad people. They reject Christ. They crucify Christ. You would, you would just arrive at the conclusion that your anger and your animosity t- toward them is fully justified. And it was not until this, this particular pastor was introduced to the Old Testament to see the continuity of the story so that Jesus, it, there's, there isn't a separation. There's one story of the Old Testament and then it goes viral in Jesus. That is essentially the way God, who at various times in various ways who has spoken to us by the prophets, has now in these last days spoken to us by his son whom he has appointed heir of all things. So that's what we're, uh, we're, we're digging into here the next, little, the next few weeks or next little while. We're digging into this whole idea of the supremacy of the Son of God. So <clears throat> the author of this letter is anonymous. People have wondered for a long, long time um, whether Paul wrote it, maybe one of his co-workers, maybe Barnabas or Apollos, but Truthfully, really, nobody really knows. God knows who wrote this book. <clears throat> in chapter 2, when we get there, um, we'll learn that the author had a close personal relationship with the, with the disciples who were around Jesus. So he had been inf- informed in his Christian understanding by those who had actually walked with Jesus. Um, we don't even know who the, who the uh, recipients of this letter were in particularly in particular we don't know where they lived although the author of this letter seems to be very familiar with them he knows them very well and he assumes this one thing he assumes that they have a thorough knowledge of the old testament scriptures and so he's going to build on their knowledge of the old testament scriptures to show them why Jesus is the better way so um they are, the people are well acquainted with the storyline, particularly of the first five books of the Bible, which are, writ- are written by Moses and are known as the Torah. The first five books of the Bible are called in Hebrew the Torah, and they're written by Moses. And, and basically it talks about how Moses led the descendants of Abraham you know, out of the slavery in Egypt and up to Mount Sinai, and then the, how they received the Torah when they made a covenant with God, and how they built a, a place to worship, a tabernacle in the wilderness. There the priests offered sacrifices, and they, he, 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 he uh, is confident that they know the story of the fact that the Jewish people wandered in the wilderness for 40 years because of their failure to believe God, their their failure to continue to believe God in the midst of their struggle, and they just got frustrated with the whole thing. They got frustrated with with the difficulty of it all. They got frustrated with the fact that they didn't feel like they had everything they need, and they just got discouraged about the whole thing. And then they'd get on Moses' case, and they'd start to grumble and complain about the, the route. And so God said, I can't use these people. And that's what happens when we abandon faith. God says, I can't use you. Because faith is what activates. Faith is the substance of things not seen. It is the evidence of things hoped for. It is the active, energizing ingredient in our life that takes truth and puts it like into motion. Makes it happen in our life, right? But if we, if we abandon faith, if our faith gets cold, if we... 
if, if we fail to trust God, and that's really what faith is, it's more than just a, a cerebral intellectual acknowledgement, it is, it is the confidence that my trust in God will not be disappointed. Because that's what God essentially asks us to do with our lives, trust me. What did Joel shared it before, right? Trust in the Lord with all your heart, don't lean to your own understanding. In all of your ways, acknowledge him and he will make the path straight. So, <clears throat> these people, the author who's writing this book of, of Hebrews knows that these people have a thorough knowledge of all that happened in the Old Testament, the whole wilderness wandering, the, the whole sacrificial system, um, and, and most likely they were Jewish believers. They were Jews who now had come to believe in Jesus as Messiah, but the problem was as they came to accept and believe that, Jewish, that Jesus was Messiah, they began to be cut off from the community little by little and just kind of left out. And so they were losing everything. They were losing everything to follow Jesus. And that's not inconsistent with what Jesus is. One of the, one of the most wonderful things, I think, about the New Testament, uh, Testament and what we are about is that the more you dig into it, you know that God is not lying to you. The Bible is not lying to you. It is telling you truth about yourself, and you know it's true. It's telling you you're a sinner. I don't want to hear that I'm a sinner. You can't tell me I'm a sinner. No, you know what? I'm a sinner. I know it's true. I have proved it over and over and over and over. <laughs> right? The Bible is telling us truth about this world, and, um, and, and that's how you know that you can rely on it. So God wants us to simply place our trust in him and continue to go forward. So the author anticipates that the readers know all of the details of all this Old Testament stuff, and so that's, when the, that's where the name of the the letter comes from, the letter to the Hebrews. We also have some clues from chapter 10 that this community of believers was facing persecution and possibly even imprisonment um, <clears throat> because of their relationship with, with Jesus. And so as a result, some were turning away. Some were walking away. The pressure was get, getting too great. The difficulty was getting too great. And so they, some were just um, uh, inclined to walk away and abandon their faith altogether. And this explains the structure and the purpose um, of this letter. So first, there's this short introduction, that's where we are right here, which is followed by four sections where the author compares and contrasts Jesus with key people, key events from Israel's history. He kinda, he's, he's gonna kinda take them down memory lane so to speak. He's going to walk them through various different stages and events and things that basically have gone on with the people of Israel, and he's going to compare those things, or he's going to um, rehearse those things or bring them back to those things now in the light of who Jesus is. And basically, he's going to make one fundamental statement. Jesus is better. Jesus is better than what you had. Jesus is better than what anybody had. Jesus is supreme and to be exalted above all other things. And again, that's why I, I mentioned it to you, Joel, but if I, 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 I greatly appreciate the fact that our worship is focused on the Lord himself. And as he is lifted up, he says he'll draw people. So there's a short introduction, which is followed by four sections, in which the author compares key people, 
um, uh, with, with Jesus in the events of uh, Israel's history. Then there's a comparison with Moses. Okay, now, nobody in the Old Testament is more important than Moses. Moses is the absolute, like, big dog in the Old Testament. He is revered and respected and honored. He is God's original, original communicator. But in this book, Jesus is going to be compared with Moses. Guess who wins? Right toe. <clears throat> okay, um, then third, Jesus will be compared with the priesthood. Okay, particularly with the Levitical priesthood. And then even uh, by, by bringing in Psalm 110, this one of, that's one of the great th- uh, parts about this book too. By reading this book, you kind of get an intro to a lot of very important passages of Scripture in the Old Testament. Because a lot of these Old Testament passages of Scripture were really prophetic words that were speaking about what was yet to come, and what was yet to come, of course, is our Lord Jesus. And so, in, you know, like, it's like in Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage? Why do the people imagine such a vain and foolish things? The, king of the, the kings of the earth have set themselves. The rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against the, his anointed, saying, let us cast their bands away from us. Let us break their bonds and sunder. Okay, so here's, here's rebellious humanity with its fist raised toward God saying, we don't need you, we don't want you, get out of, just get out of our life, right? He that sits in the heavens will, right? He that sits in the heavens will laugh. Then he will speak to them in his anger and vex them in his sore displeasure, it says in the King James Version. Yet he says, I've set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree. So that whole Psalm 2, while it's a really cool statement, um, and, and it's, really, it's a cool song, okay? I don't know how it was sung when David originally sang it, but it was a song. But the song has a much, much deeper significance because that song and that whole second Psalm is really a messianic Psalm about Jesus. They're buried in that Psalm talking about the, the, the contentiousness of humanity and the rebelliousness of humanity. There God drops this thing. Ask, he says, um, I will declare the decree. You are my son. This day I have begotten you. Um, ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the uttermost part of the earth for your possession. Okay, so here's this little statement found in this second psalm in which the son will ask, the, the, the father says, this is my son, hear him. It's kind of like the same thing as when Jesus goes up on the Mount of Transfiguration and there they are, Peter, James, and John, and while they're there praying, all of a sudden Jesus is transferred. He starts to, he starts to glow and, and these two guys are just sitting, Peter, James, and John, they're just kind of sitting there amazed beholding this, this thing. And, and then there's two other people there. So when it's all over, Peter, wise and sharp as attack, as he always is, right? Says, ah, I know what we should do here. We, we, we need to build three tabernacles. And we're going to build a tabernacle for you, Lord, and because it turns out that the, um, the two people that there appear with Jesus are Elijah and Moses, right? Elijah representing the prophets, the prophetic aspect of the Old Testament. Moses representing the law of, of the Old Testament. And so you have, you have Elijah, you have Jesus, you have Moses, and, and uh, so Peter says, oh, I, let's build three tabernacles, one for you, one for Elijah, one for Moses. And then the voice is heard. This is my beloved son 
hear him. Right, so this is kind of the fundamental, the basis for this whole book, that it is in Jesus Christ that God has revealed himself to mankind. Tell me one thing, what more could he do? That's what we have to think about. I mean, could he, could he have written it in the sky? What more could God possibly do? to make himself known. That's the idea, that we have a communicating God, God who at various times in his various ways has spoken in time past through the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom he made the worlds. It just gets richer and richer and deeper and, and more incredible. So there, there can be no higher possible revelation than that God would lower himself to become one of us so that he could manifest and show what the life of God looks like in human form, but even more than that, so that he could take the life that he had, the life that he was given, and offer it up as a sacrifice so that sins may be forgiven. Can you imagine how much I'm really getting off here, but can you imagine how much it freaked the devil out? Can you, um, here the devil launches this whole scheme. Okay, he's been thinking about it since the, the temptation of Jesus. He comes to Jesus, and he's looking to take him out in that temptation. But Jesus just, well, it's written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. He puts him on the high, high, uh, temple, you know, and he sa- and Jesus says, depart from me, Satan, for you shall ser- worship the Lord God, and him only shall you serve. And so th- the devil comes along, he's trying to like lure him into what I would call the autonomy rebellion. Act on your own behalf. Do for yourself. That's what's most important. Take these stones. You're the son of God. Take these stones, turn them into bread. And so, but Jesus says, well, man doesn't live by bread alone. Without getting off on that particular event, <clears throat> it is it, it, it was Satan's attempt to try to draw Jesus into the human f- failure, the universal human failure that is common to all the children of Adam, right? He fails to do that. So he comes to the end of the road, and he puts it in the mind of Judas Iscariot to betray him. All these things are like laid, laid out in the Scripture very clearly. He puts it in the, in, in the minds of the, the Jewish leaders at that particular time to call him to account. And so finally, he, he manages and masterminds his entire plan. He's arrested. They bring him in, and he's on his way out to be crucified, carrying his cross. And you can, uh, you can only imagine the devil going like, gotcha. I win. And so they're taking Jesus out, and they nail him to a cross. And couldn't you imagine the glee waiting all this time? This is a victory for darkness that is unprecedented and unimaginable. And I got him. I got him. And then they nail him to a cross, and they lift him up, boom, and plant him in the earth. And he says something that blows the entire thing up. He says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And the devil, what? (laughs) What? 
what? Forgive them? I've just masterminded a plan not only to take out the Son of God himself, I made them responsible for the, for the act. They're the ones that murdered the Son of God. I got them all now. They'll all be eternally damned and condemned forever. How could God ever release them from the guilt that they now bear? Because light has come into the world, but men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. He had it nailed down. Satan we're talking about. And Jesus blows the whole thing up. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And so the entire plan, this whole thing to get him crucified, to get him out, to take him out of the the mix, and then to trap humanity in endless guilt and endless culpability for the greatest crime that could possibly ever happen, it's all done, it's forgiven, because Jesus has absorbed all the guilt and all of the shame on our behalf so that today, like this book of Hebrews is gonna say to us, now we can come boldly to the throne of grace to find grace and mercy and help in need. That that wasn't even in in the message here today. But isn't that so cool? Isn't that so important, right? So to think of that victory that Jesus won, think of you won your victory by dying on the cross. That is not the normal path that we would think of as a victorious path, right? <clears throat> but in fact, it was. It was, it was total, complete hands-down victory. So <clears throat> back to the message here. So um, the author has two main goals in all of these contrasts. The first goal is to establish and to, eva- and to elevate that Jesus is superior to anyone or anything else. He is showing that Jesus is supremely worthy of all their trust and all their devotion. And then, excuse me, <clears throat> the second goal is to challenge his readers to remain faithful despite hard times, despite persecution, despite even imprisonment, to stay faithful to Jesus during difficult times. So in every one of the four sections that we read in this book, there is a strong warning, and we're going to have to deal with them. And they, they upset you, for it is impossible for those who have tasted of the good world to come, if they turn away to renew them unto repentance, since they have crucified to themselves, afresh the Son of God, and put him to an open shame. Ah! Right? If, when you read those words as a believer, as a sincere believer, and you realize that you blew it just this week, that you failed to be like 100% completely obedient and, and, and devoted to Christ just this week, <clears throat> you realize, is that being written to me? Should I be worried about, am I saved? Am I even saved? Because I've tasted the good word and the powers of the things that are yet to come, and yet, I've, at, di- at different times in my life, I've fallen short of this whole thing, or I've, you, you might have even like openly denied the Lord in some way, or, you know, all of us, all of us have a struggle to keep this thing where it needs to be all the time and keep ourselves where we need to be. So there, so there are gonna be these four different warnings that we're gonna come across that are strong, but remember that the heart of the warning is to the person who is ready to say, adios. 
If you are ready to say adios to your faith, to Christ Jesus, <coughs> those things are for you. And another thing, <coughs> this is just a little Pastor Steveism, I guess. See, because I, <coughs> I, I have never really been like a theology guy in the sense of a systematic theology guy, like I got the right formula. I know all the parameters. I, got, I have the right doctrine here. Because I always feel like God is far less interested that we know, somebody's gonna misunderstand what I have to say here, but it's being said with a very gen- <clears throat> because it's kind of like it falls in the category of knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And sometimes we can get a system in our mind and we will just simply think, well, that's what makes me secure. That's what, that's what makes it so that I am confident that my security is in Jesus. And I always feel like, let the word of God just speak. Let it just speak. So if the word of God comes to you and it's convicting you about some aspect of your life or some aspect of your behavior, some aspect of your attitude, let it happen. (coughs) And if it scares you a little bit, it's probably a good thing. Right? Not that we should, not that God wants to build a relationship in our life on the basis of fear. Right? Perfect love casts out fear. So God does, God wants to build this relationship. His ante on the table, his starting point on the table is not putting us in fear. That was Mount Sinai with Moses 1500 BC. Those people were fearful. Those people were so afraid that they said, we, we don't, Moses, put something over your face, man, because you're glowing way too much, and this God that we're, that's coming to speak to us is freaking us out. So you, you handle that. <clears throat> but God never wanted to build a relationship. Nobody can build a relationship on fear. You can't build a relationship on fear. People try. But you, all right relationships, so anyway, are, are grounded in love. <clears throat> so in terms, what, what, I'm, what I'm saying, now I have to clarify whatever it was that I just said about theology, not to minimize theology, not to minimize, I, I love it and I love to study it and I think it's very important, but it never eclipses the significance of the fact that God wants to communicate. God, who at various times and various ways has spoken to us in times past by the, you know, God wants to communicate and, if, and, <clears throat> and so let him, let him speak. Let him speak. And sometimes, yes, he will speak a hard word. Anybody ever had God speak a hard word to you? Ever ha- anybody ever had God speak a loving word to you? Right? Jamie tells the story you've told a number of times about, I guess, sometime in, in your situation, and, and then you're feeling kind of bad about yourself, and that happens on a pretty regular basis for a lot of us, Right? And, and you're feeling like you, you, know, you, you don't deserve to be even a part of this whole thing. And, and what did God say to you, James? There you go. That, that just knocks you right off your feet, right? You're feeling so convicted, so guilty. All right, back to, so, <clears throat> God, let, so let him speak. So let's dive in this morning to see how all this unfolds. So here's, let's, let's break this passage down. Right? God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us 
by his son. So the author is saying that Jesus is superior to all of the previous ways that God has revealed himself. We talked last week about how God reveals himself. We talked about natural revelation or God's revelation through nature. The heavens declare the glory of God. Earth shows forth his handiwork. Day unto day utter speech. Night unto night their voice is heard. There is no language. There's no, there is no um, tongue in the world that does not hear the, the revelation of nature. So it's, there's a natural revelation, there's a special revelation, which is God's word, the Bible, but then what we have now is the revelation of God in Christ. And then he makes this astounding claim that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory and the exact imprint <clears throat> of his nature. These metaphors <clears throat> are making the closest possible identification between Jesus and God, who being the very um, brightness of his image and the radiance of his glory, when he had sat down by himself, um, <clears throat> well, I'll get there in a minute. So um, with, with, this whole, with this whole issue of him uh, setting up Jesus um, for us to, to see, <clears throat> I'm sorry, <clears throat> It says he was, Jesus is the express image of his purpose, person. Now that's a, that's a term I wanna take some time with here this morning. Because when he says that Jesus is the express image of his person, let me see, I, let me go back to that. Yes, who being, notice the text there. Who being the brightness of his glory, and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power. There are three things that are being mentioned there that are attributes or qualities or functions about realities about who Jesus is. <clears throat> he is the brightness of God's glory. He is the express image <clears throat> of God's person, and he upholds all things by the word of his power. Just very briefly, I know I've been over this ground too a lot of times, but because we've done chemistry over the last few years and just understanding there, there are, the, the fundamental forces of nature are, are unknown in terms of why they exist. Everyone knows that there's gravity. There could be no universe if there was not gravity because gravity is this strange force that's holding things to, to one another. So we live in a solar system. Everything is attracted to itself and it's all in perfect balance and everything just keeps on working because everything has a certain gravitational attraction to the sun and then those planets have gra gravitational attraction to one another and then the moon has a gravitational attraction to the earth. Gravity is working and happening everywhere but there is not one scientist alive or, and never has been that could tell you what it is. That's totally true, you can check me on this. <clears throat> Nobody has the slightest idea what it is. They have some idea of how it works, and even that's not very clear. But nobody understands the force of gravity. Nobody understands the strong force. In the nucleus of an atom are all positively and neutrally charged particles. The nucleus of an atom is all protons and neutrons. Electrons, which are the negatively charged particles, are moving at various different orbits around the outside of the thing, but at the heart is the nucleus of the atom. The nucleus of the atom is, the, is incredibly dense. The weird part is that 
What normally happens is if you take the positive pole of a magnet and the positive pole of a magnet and try pushing them together, what happens? <laughs> they repel, right? Like charges repel. Opposite charges attract. So here you have the entire positive force clustered densely in the nucleus of an atom. What holds it together in, in the scientific world is called the strong force. But there's not a person alive that can tell you what makes the strong force work. It defies electromagnetism. It defies the understanding that we have of everything else. But it says here in this passage, I gotta look at it, upholding all things by the word of his power. And so the, th then there's the weaker force. The weaker force is the attractive force between the electrons away on the outside and the um, protons on the inside. And what, what ought to happen? And we get all bunch of positively charged particles and we got some negatives out here. What should happen here? Well, wasn't much of a clap, right? The whole thing should collapse, but it doesn't. The, the, it's the funny part that people who say they believe in science think that religion is folly and think that science has made them so intelligent. But in reality, those people, as much as I love science and I think it's a wonderful thing and I'm grateful for it and I'm grateful for the life that is given to us, it just presents us with mysteries that we can't really comprehend at all. <clears throat> so, Jesus is three things. <clears throat> He is <clears throat> the brightness of his glory, oh, the express image of his person and upholding all things, and he upholds all things. He, it is in him that all things consist, says the book of Colossians. Okay, got to keep moving. So, <clears throat> so it's, uh, it, the reason why this letter is so important is it brings the old, oh, we're not there anymore. Okay, so when the author says that Jesus is the express image of his person, he is saying something truly extraordinary. I want to take you back to this whole concept of image, okay? And we'll go to Genesis chapter 1. Okay, Genesis 1, 26 through 28 says this, and God said, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So this is God's original creation of humanity. This is what we're going to build. We're going to make one like us. We're going to make one that, that, that bears our image into this created world. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Yet isn't it cool that God, that God has always been light years ahead of everything? People would love to say that religion is all chauvinistic and male-dominated and all this kind of stuff. It never was. In the image of God, he created them, us, male and female. This idea of maleness, yeah, that's real big from God's point of view. So is femaleness. And the... Boy, here is a place to go, man. <laughs> living in this crazy world, living in this crazy world which can't seem to understand maleness and femaleness anymore. So there's just this weird confusion about the whole thing, when in reality, it is the most beautiful thing in, in this world, right? Women, 
love not every man, right? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? But, but there's something in, 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 the, in, a, in a good man that's to be honored and, and is inspiring and his strength and his, and his good power. And you know what I mean? It's, it's a beautiful thing. And the same thing is true from a male point of view. Looking at the beauty of ladies, having ladies in the mix and, and what they then bring into the mix. And they br- I'm happy we live in this age. I'm kind of probably like a first level feminist in the sense, what's that? Yeah, I know. Yeah. No. <laughs> Does it, does it ever end? <laughs> Even in the middle of preaching, I have my wife telling me what to do. <clears throat> no, I, I, I will have to, yeah. <laughs> let's just, let's, wisdom, thank you, Uncle Bill. But the point simply being that God has created this complementary set of beings, and when it comes together, it's wonderful. Right? It's beautiful. It's so attractive on the male side to see the beauty and loveliness of ladies in the mix. I presume that same experience happens on the ladies' side as they see men who are to be admired, men who are, who are good men. And, then, and then, it, it, then we are able to come together, even the whole idea, the whole sexual thing. It's beautiful. Am I allowed to say that in church? Right? It is so honorable. So it is not a surprise when the devil comes up with some screwball ideology that tries to tear down the most basic aspect of our identity. That's what's going on. It is such nonsense. It is such BS that it has to just simply be utterly and completely seen for what it is. But let me go into just one thing and and, and I'll quit. Because that whole thing... God created men in, in his own image, but that got messed up fast, right? So at the time of the disobedience in the Garden of Eden, once sin had entered into the picture, now there's a problem and something comes into the mix and it is called death. God says, in the day that you eat of the fruit of, that, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. Did they die? Well, not by our definition of death, because our day they should have just like dropped dead right there on the spot. They didn't die physically. They didn't die intellectually. They died spiritually. Because death in the Bible is really much more about separation from God than it is about ceasing to exist. Okay? So that by the time, so when, when, they, when Adam and Eve sinned against God, something got corrupted on the inside, the nature, the image that God had originally put in them, which was to reflect his own image and his own glory. That got tarnished and broken. So by the time we get to Genesis chapter 5, <clears throat> we read in the word, let's see, I move it forward. So Adam lived 130 years and begat a son in his own likeness. Now, the the messed up, deformed, twisted, corrupted image is now being passed on from parent to child, parent to child. And so, um, so the image in us has been twisted and broken. That original image, there, there are vestiges of it still in there with the fact that we have a conscience, the fact that we, that all of that is part of that original equipment, but it was damaged beyond, um, beyond repair, right? But it says of Jesus, 
He is the image. And that, I'll have to pick this up again next week. He is the image of the invisible God. In other words, God sent him in to show this is what it was supposed to look like. Right? This is what it was supposed to be. What Jesus is is not a weird phenomenon. Jesus is what we were supposed to be. We all would have been like Jesus had this damage not been done, which originally corrupted the nature of God in us. And so that image is twisted and broken, but in comes Jesus, and, he, and, and that's what we find in him. We find the, re, the repair, not the repair, but the, the true, the true image of God is manifested in Jesus Christ. And so that's why he, he is not, it, a, no one can compare to him because he brings to us the reality of, of what God really is, what he's like, what his nature is like. And then we can see that being played out and that's why it is that Jesus is to be exalted, right? Above every other name, that in the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Oh, we gotta quit. Whoever decided to move this thing to 10 o'clock? Was that? <laughs> All right, come on, let's, <clears throat> let's just take a moment and ponder all of this. Boy, there, that's what I'm saying. There's just so much in this book. It's so rich with spiritual truth. So thank you, Lord. Thank you that you spoke in times past through the prophets and that through that Old Testament revelation, we learn a lot, a lot about who you are and what you're about. But it, it's not enough. You had to show us something more. And so in the in your effort to get through to us, to reach us, to help us, you decided that you yourself would come into this flesh, actually be what we are for 30 some odd years. And then if that wasn't enough, to offer your life as a sacrifice. Glory to your name, O Lord God. And so we, we just praise you for this opportunity that we have to know what is real, what is true, what is eternal, what is right, what is faithful, all of it, what is noble and just and praiseworthy and all of it, because it's all, it is all wrapped up in you. So Lord God, we pray as we continue <clears throat> to, to dig into this wonderful book that we will see new, that we will receive new understanding. And also that this, that old image of ours, which was shattered in the fall, will now be made new by this new life, this new spirit that you have made, that you have given to us in Christ Jesus. So Lord God, be exalted. In this place, be exalted. Be, Jesus, be the center as we sing. Jesus, be the center of it all. Amen. Amen.